the back door. It's good to be with you this Easter morning. I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and open to Romans chapter 5. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, that's on page 942. Page 942, Romans chapter 5. We're going to start our service by, or start our sermon by reading through the passage um, in Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. And uh, I know we just had you sit down, but one of the things we do here as a church when we hear God's word read is we stand for the reading of God's word. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We're on page 942, Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for, indeed, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray together. God, this is a day of great joy as we gather together and we consider the message of Easter. And I pray that your spirit would be active amongst us as we look to your word, as we look to understand what your word has said, what you are telling us, even through Easter. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Tibetan Buddhists have a tradition when somebody dies called sky burial. They take the body and they cut it into pieces and they spread it up in the mountains for the vultures and other wild animals to eat of the flesh. The idea here is that through this final act of generosity, giving of themselves to others, 
these animals. Their consciousness might be freed and they might experience a new level of enlightenment. The uh, Sarakoli Tahiks, when somebody dies who is a Sarakoli Tahik, they will actually have a family member sleep with the corpse the first night of the body's death. The idea being that this body so close to the supernatural world can impart certain visions or understandings to this young relative who's been left behind. The Han Chinese, some of them, uh, though they claim to be atheists, will take different things uh, made out of paper and burn them, thinking that as they burn them, they are passing them on to the person in the afterlife. So they'll make pictures of houses or, or cars and burn them, or even fake money. There's a story after World War II, uh, a Han Chinese found a pile of U.S. cash, thousands of dollars, didn't know that it was real money, thought it was fake, and burned it for their loved one to carry with them into the afterlife. Now, we enlightened Westerners might scoff at some of these death traditions of other cultures. But think about some of the things we think about death and ways we understand death. The, the increasingly dominant way of thinking about death is the idea of naturalism. That is, the death of the body is just the cycle of life. It's a tool of natural selection, a way for the species to evolve. I think it's just as uncompelling to look at a corpse and say that those cells that sit there are really no different in essence from the body that was just coursing with life a few minutes prior, save for that now the brain has ceased to function, the body has ceased to breathe, the heart has ceased to pump. It's, it's not a compelling picture. But I think part of it is that we in the West don't want to have to deal with death. We don't like to think about death. So we entertain ourselves to distract us from having to think about death. We do everything we can to delay death. But even for us in the West, when we're quiet, when somebody we love dearly has died, when we have a, a random moment of contemplation, the shadows of death creep into our thoughts and grip our consciousness. And we think about this thing called death. See, across time and across culture, death is a stark reminder to us that something about this world is broken. Death is a reminder that all is not as it should be. Now, the Bible has things to say about death, and it teaches us how to think about death. And the first thing it teaches is that when God created the world, he created a world without any death in it. And then he gave the first man, Adam, a command in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. He said, from the tree of the knowledge, he said, you may eat from any tree of the garden, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. 
For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now those of you who are familiar with the story know that Adam, sure enough, did take of the fruit and eat. But he didn't drop dead at that moment. Actually, what the Bible explains is at that moment when he chose to sin and rebel against his creator, death began, the, the force of death began to reign across the whole world. That death began to work in him as his body, instead of being living, slowly began to decay and die. The process of aging and moving toward his death began. And not just in him, but in his wife and in his, all his offspring after him. The, the Bible even says that this, this reign of death spread to all of creation so that, as Roman eight says, Romans 8 says, the whole of creation was subject to, to, to decay and corruption. Now, if you want to just think of this in terms of like a, a, a picture, if you're, if you're someone who thinks visually like I am, think of a, the world in kind of bright, pristine colors, vivid, with a blue sky. And then when Adam sins, a dark stain is unleashed upon the whole world. The, the order, the nature of the world is changed. And a shadow creeps over all the earth. An eternal night sets in. The pall of death is over the whole face of the earth. Look how Romans 5 talks about it. If you haven't, if you've closed your Bibles, open them up again to Romans 5. There in verse 12, we see it first. Sorry, verse 14. See, it says, death reigned. There it's talking about from Adam to Moses. Then look down at verse 17. In the middle of the verse, death reigned. And then look down at verse 21. As sin reigned in death. Do you hear what the Bible is saying about what's going on in our world? We live in a day when death reigns. Death is a symbol of our fractured relationship with our creator. It's a byproduct of sin. In fact, biblically speaking, as we just saw, you cannot separate sin and death. They are kinfolk. They're related to one another. So look again at Romans chapter 5. You see it there in verse 12. For as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then look at verse 15 there in the middle. For if many died through one man's trespass. Or look at verse 17 there at the beginning. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. And then again, verse 20. Now, or, yeah, verse 20. Now the law came to increase the trespass. 
Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death. Do you hear that? They go together. The Bible says that as sure as death reigns in this world, so sin lurks in every human heart. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we look into our own heart, we have to be, we have to admit, sin lurks in my own heart. Sometimes the most foul thoughts come into my mind. I find that I just kind of default to a selfish position in my own instincts. I find that even, even when I establish kind of my own standards, here's how I want to live, I can't live up to those own standards. Now, now, surely, I'm not as bad as I could be. There's a lot of things that I don't do that I could do. And certainly there are people who are a lot worse than me. But nonetheless, when I look into my own heart, I have to admit that there is something broken. Even in the smallest things, I cannot meet my own expectations. Just, just take, for example, a small example with parenting. Now, I always thought I, was, I had this kind of dream of the kind of dad I was going to be. I was going to be this phenomenal dad. And I would watch, you know, I would watch other dads behave, and I'd say, I want to be like that. But then I'd see something else, a dad being impatient with his child. Oh, oh I don't, that's not who I'm going to be. And then I became a dad. And all my ideas about, I, I'm going to be such a patient dad. I'm gonna, well, I started teaching patience to my children. I've talked about the importance to them about the importance of patience. But then I find I'm getting my kids in the car, and one of my ch children chooses to go and play for a few minutes before getting into the car. Whoosh! Impatience overcomes my heart. I start barking orders and speaking sharply and doing all the things that I thought I would never do as a dad. It's a small example, and we can kind of smile and laugh at it, but it also is a true example of our own hearts. You see, I'm broken. Sin lurks within me. And we might say, you know, that's just, that's just a small thing. It's not that big of a deal. Everybody's impatient sometimes. True. Then we look out in the world, in society, and we see all the broken marriages, kids coming out of broken homes. Or, or we see in our own life the trail we've left, maybe not a big trail, maybe it's a small trail, but nonetheless a trail where there's been heartbreak and strife. Or you think about how our kids grow up and then they need therapy to deal with our parenting, right? Or pretty much any family I've ever known, my own included, somewhere in there, in the web of relationships that is a family, there are fractures. Are we too proud to admit that we are broken? Are we too self-righteous to admit that our hearts need fixing? 
The Bible teaches that as sure as death reigns, sin reigns. And that is the Bible's assessment of the way the world is. If you look out at the world and you're trying to grasp why is the world the way it is, why is there heartache, why is there evil, why is there injustice, why is there pain, why am I going through this, the Bible's assessment is we live under the reign of sin and death. The diagnosis, according to the Bible, is that Adam sinned and unleashed the reign of sin and death upon the world. Some of us in this room right now feel that in a very keen and sharp way. Some of us feel, us feel it in a more muted, dulled way that we can even distract ourselves from. But none of us can deny the reality that we live in a broken, fallen world and that even in our own hearts, we are problem, part of the problem. So what does all this have to do with Easter? The answer is, Everything. Everything. Because the Bible doesn't just give us the diagnosis. It also gives us the cure. It doesn't just tell us that things are broken. It tells us how they're fixed. And I said, what does this have to do with Easter? But really the question is, what does this have to do with Good Friday and Easter? Because it's on these two days that sin and death are dealt with. So let's start with Good Friday. It's on Good Friday, Jesus' death, that Jesus dealt with the fundamental problem, sin. So look with me again at Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Listen to it and listen to what it says Jesus accomplished through his death. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's Adam, so one act of righteousness, this is Jesus, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Do you see how what Jesus did on the cross actually dealt with my own sin? It made me a sinner justified. That means I had right standing with God. Instead of having a broken relationship, I had a right relationship. I was righteous. I was counted right because of Jesus. Why is that? Why did his death accomplish that? A few books later in 2 Corinthians, Paul would write, God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, perfect Jesus, to become sin so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. In other words, he took his righteous life and allowed him to become, our sin was transferred to him so that his righteousness could be transferred to us. And as we read on Good Friday, the prophet Isaiah prophesied, hundreds of years before Jesus' death, that he would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. It would say Yahweh would lay on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. 
So that's exactly what happened on the cross. And when you read the story of what happened on the cross, you see Jesus hanging on the cross, and he cries out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, he became sin, and he drank the full cup of the wrath of God. He took our sin upon himself. And the Bible describes the whole land going dark while Jesus is hanging, breathing on the cross. Now, darkness in the Bible is, is a symbol throughout the scriptures. It's a consistent symbol of the judgment of God. So here is Jesus receiving the wrath of God on our behalf, and the land symbolically goes dark. And then, just before he breathes his last, he yells out, It is finished. What is finished? His dealing with our sin. His drinking the cup of God's wrath that should have been for us. His propitiating, his atoning God's wrath making atonement for our sin. Now, it's easy to say this. It's easy to say somebody's death was in my place, that he took my sin upon himself. But where's the proof? You guys remember the... uh, the test I gave where I said sin and death go together is a paternity test that links these two, right? Sin and death are related. So if someone has actually defeated sin, what will they also defeat? That's all right. You can tell me. Death. That's all right. You know, in World War II, there were two significant days. One day was called D-Day. And the other was called V-Day. Now, of course, there was V-E Day and V-J Day. But we'll focus on Europe for now, all right? D-Day is the day when the Allied troops were able to get a foothold in Normandy. And it was the pivotal day in the war. Once they had taken Normandy... Once they had a foothold wherein to pour all their troops and pour all their supplies for this invasion of Europe, or retaking of Europe, I should say, the victory was all but assured. Sure, there was some battles ahead. Sure, there was some fighting to do after that. But then, when Hitler actually conceded defeat, when he surrendered, that was V-Day, the victory. Good Friday is our D-Day. Easter is our V-Day. What Jesus did on the cross when he defeated sin fundamentally changed the order of the world. The reign of Adam's sin was dealt a fatal blow. That dark poison that had spread to all the world 
was now put on notice that something was stronger than it. But to prove that he'd actually accomplished the defeating of sin, he also defeated death. Because if you don't defeat death, you really haven't defeated sin. So on Easter, Jesus rose up out of the grave. Easter proved the good news of Good Friday was, in fact, true. The reign of death was dealt a fatal blow. Turn with me just ahead a little bit to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's on page 961. First Corinthians 15. I want you to hear how Paul talks about the importance of the resurrection. So we're on page 961, chapter 15, starting at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why does he say that it's all in vain if Christ didn't actually rise from the dead? It's because if Christ didn't actually rise from the dead, then he hasn't actually dealt with the problem of this world, which is Adam's sin. We haven't been unleashed from the power of the curse. But look at verse 20. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man, now here's Adam again, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive you get it good friday jesus dealt with sin on easter he dealt with death the two things that the bible says are the problem with this world are what's wrong with this fallen world sin and death have been defeated on good friday and easter respectively and the fact that Jesus did, in fact, rise is proof for us that our sin has been dealt with and atoned for. Now, the Bible also teaches that Jesus, after he rose, ascended to heaven and that there will be a time when he comes back and returns. And it's when he comes back that he'll usher in his ultimate and final victory. So we won't, we won't see the fullness of this victory over sin and death 
until Christ returns. But the Bible also teaches that for those who entrust themselves to Christ, who cling to Christ and say, I'm broken, I need you, Jesus, and they take him as their own, that that resurrection power begins to work in our very hearts so that, so that the world can see a glimpse of the power of God that he, is, that he has conquered sin and death. They see a glimpse of that in the lives of we who are believers. If you're not a Christian and you're here with us, you probably came with somebody. And probably the person you came with is a Christian. You look at their life and you can say there is something fundamentally different about their nature. Not that they're perfect, but that there is something fundamentally different about their nature. That's Jesus' power at work within them. Or maybe you're somebody who, who calls yourself a Christian. But as you think of Christianity, it means you go to church, you believe in God, you do certain things that you're supposed to do. But Christianity for you has never meant, hey, I'm broken, and I need the life-changing power of Jesus. So I cling to the cross and what he has done for me. So you're hearing this and you're going, this power that Jesus, you're saying Jesus has, I've never felt that. I want to say to you who are with us today, if you find yourself in this one of those situations, God is speaking to you today through his word. Listen to his voice. Come to him and know the power of of the resurrection in your own heart. Not just as some fanciful idea, but as a reality that has dealt the fatal blow to what is wrong with this world and what is wrong in my own heart. The diagnosis of the world's problem, according to the Bible, is the reign of sin and death. And the Bible gives the cure. Jesus conquered sin on Good Friday, enabling him to conquer death on Easter. Have you noticed that when something important is broken and then it gets fixed, there's this immense joy? Our family experienced it this past Christmas. Maybe you did too. Our electricity went out for three days. And let me tell you, for a bunch of little kids who are only thinking about Christmas, having to shuffle them about from place to place, going to a hotel, trying to build a fire that fills the house with smoke, and all the rest, is not their idea of a good time, nor is it the parents' idea of a nice, carefree holiday. We had enough stress as it was. So when we drove home from our Christmas Eve service, after three days without electricity and saw the Christmas lights on our house lit up, we were ecstatic with joy. Karen and I told each other, we don't need any other presents. This is the presents. Because there's joy when something broken has been fixed. In Texas, the heat can get up to uh, Fahrenheit 100 degrees. I'm still not good at my conversions. And one of the other pastors in Texas, during the summer, his air conditioning broke. 
He's calling in the middle of the night, trying to find someone who can fix it. And finally, when it gets fixed, joy. We can breathe again. Or maybe you've seen some of the footage of, of these third world tribes that have been drinking um, water that, that is not clean, filled with disease and filth. And then they get a well put in. And they get clean water for the first time. And the whole village comes together in celebration. There is nothing more profoundly broken than this world under the reign of sin and death. And so nothing should cause us more profound joy than the fact that Jesus has triumphed. I remember so vividly when this hit me one Easter morning about 12 years ago. I was getting ready. I think I was uh, in my kitchen, my parents' kitchen, and Handel's Messiah was on. And I flipped it forward to the Hallelujah Chorus. And the Hallelujah Chorus has this line in it. It says, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I literally started dancing around my kitchen for joy at those truths that this fallen, broken kingdom of this world has become, because of Christ's victory, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he'll reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Again, I say, I know there are some of us here who feel the pangs of the brokenness of this world in a deeper way than others. And I say to you this morning, let Easter joy be a joy to you that Christ has conquered, that death and sin do not have the final say, that Jesus will reign eternally in his good, the goodness of his kingdom. And for those of us who the pains are more dull, nonetheless, we need to realize the reality of what the Bible says and rejoice in what Christ has done. In just a moment, we're going to have an opportunity to do that. We're going to sing together a song called In Christ Alone, which contains these words. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here, in the death of Christ, I live. And then it says, there in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then, bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, sin's curse, death, contaminating power of sin, has lost its grip on me. Now, when we sing that, there better be some hooting and hollering going on. If somebody wants to dance in the aisle, that's fine. We should throw a ticker tape parade. We should all go out in the streets and turn cars out. No, we shouldn't do that. <laughs> I forgot we're Baptists. I expect an amen, maybe a hand raised during that part of the song. But it should be the joy of our hearts, these realities. Jesus 
as one. Not just as an idea, but as a fact. Death and sin have lost. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray. God, your word gives such an accurate description of why the world is the way it is. But it doesn't leave us with a diagnosis and no cure. It has given us your son who took on flesh and bore your wrath in our place so that our sin could be dealt with and therefore death could be conquered. We thank you that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and that he will reign forever and ever. We thank you that as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. This is good news indeed, and we praise your name. And now, Lord, with one voice, we together as your people gathered here at Maple Avenue praise you for these very realities. Hear our praise and be pleased by it. In Jesus' name, amen.